as we enter into the service of the word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply the scriptures to our hearts and open our eyes to the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the great sacrifice he made while we were yet sinners. In his name we pray. Amen. A reading from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, starting with verse 5, the Gospel of the Lord. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. In the Lord's Prayer, um, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us how to pray, and he says that when we pray, we're supposed to call upon God as our Father. Uh, think of what it's like to grow up without the love of a father. You think of the boy-crazy teenager who falls for every single guy who so much as smiles at her because she's always looking for the affection and the delight of a father. You think of the kid in the rough neighborhood who's looking to a gang to tell him that he's a man, to tell him that he matters because there's no dad at home waiting for him. There's no dad watching his phone, hoping he gets in touch, waiting for him to get home safely, wondering how he's doing. You think of the highly driven, successful investment banker who throws everything he has into his career to, to get rich and be powerful because he's still looking for that sense of, of approval and validation that can only come from the imprint of a father's love. You think of the guy who looks to women to validate him because he's looking for the validation that can only come from a dad. Don Miller, in his book, To To Own a Dragon, talks about what it's like uh, being raised without a dad because people always ask him, wow, what's it like being raised without a dad? And he honestly doesn't know how to answer that because he has no idea what it would be like to have had a dad. He says it's like owning a dragon. He has no idea what that would be like. He says this, he says, it's odd to be thinking about this as an adult. He says, but as I've begun to process the consequences of growing up without a father, I've realized the incredible hole in my heart that this absence left. I wish my father and I had a friendship and and that he would call me once every couple weeks and tell me I was doing a good job. I hunger for this. I don't actually like thinking about this stuff, he says, but I have a a sense that wounds don't heal until you feel them. What I mean is I, I could lash out against the world for the rest of my life and never stop to do the hard work of asking why I am angry or why I feel pain and then come to the difficult truth that the pain is there because I wanted to be loved and I wasn't. I wanted to be important to my father, but I wasn't. I wanted to be guided, but I wasn't. 
And then honestly to feel whatever it is that truth creates to respond in the way I needed to respond. Fatherlessness was not rare in the ancient world and to the context in which Jesus spoke and St. Paul wrote uh, one cemetery in, in, in Alexandria, Egypt. It's a first century Roman cemetery. And, and in it there are, uh, you know, funerary masks of different people uh, that they would take a, a mask of, of the face of the deceased and, and mold it before, before burial. And what's amazing is you look at these funeral masks of all of these people who died in first century Alexandria is how many of them are 20-year-old men. And, you know, in the ancient world, a 20-year-old man was old enough to have gotten married and old enough to have had a child or two or maybe three, but not old enough to be there for them as they grew up. There were all sorts of children who were raised never knowing a father. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about a passage in Romans 8 where, where St. Paul talks about the difference that comes when you do know that you have a father, a father who loves you, a heavenly father. Some of you know what it's like, what I'm talking about up here. And in a lot of ways, I, I'm right there with you. I, my father never called me his son. He never told me he loved me. He was always there physically bringing home the bacon, but he never told me he was proud of me. Some of you know what that's like on a much, much deeper level. And maybe you're angry and you don't know why. Maybe you keep ending up in bad situations and you're wondering, how did I get here again? Uh, Paul is going to talk about what difference it makes when God is your dad. When that sinks in and hits home, he's going to talk about being sons of God through the spirit of adoption. He's going to talk about what that happens when it sinks in, when you know that, that you're God's kid, when you really learn to approach God saying, my Father, who art in heaven. What difference does it make for the believer to know that God is his Father? We're looking at Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 14 to 17. I want you to follow along as I read. He writes, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, or Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. What difference does it make to have God as your father? First of all, it means that someone else is now responsible for you and for your sins. Uh, that's what adoption meant in ancient Rome. This is a Roman document. St. Paul was a Roman citizen. He's writing to Christians in Rome, which happened to be the capital of the empire of the Romans. We call it that for a reason. And in a Roman context, you know, today when, when we talk about being adopted or adopting a son or a daughter, typically that's a young couple uh, adopting a newborn or a very young child, um, you know, uh, and, and that certainly happened in, in the ancient world. In fact, the, the, the Christians, one of their main means of church growth was not just having babies and sharing the gospel. Uh, it was getting prisoners out of prison, saying, you're going to come with us now. And it was combing, you know, the rivers and, and the beaches and the forests, looking for abandoned children and adopting them and raising those children as, as Christians. 
And, and yet there was another kind of adoption in the ancient world that was very, very different. Typically, it was when a very wealthy Roman patrician uh, would realize he has no descendants. Maybe his uh, only son had passed away. Maybe he only had daughters, whatever it would be. Maybe he didn't have children at all. And what would happen is he would typically adopt an, an adult, a young man, uh, often it would be one of his preferred slaves that he would then uh, uh, free from slavery and adopt and he would give him his name. And that would be the person then who would, that would be the adopted son who would carry on the family name. That would be the adopted son who would carry on the family honor. That would be the son who would take his seat in the Roman Senate when he was no longer able to be there. This was the one who would receive all of the family's wealth, not only the family's name, but everything that was true of the father would would then become true of his son because the son would not just be a son, the son would be his heir. And when that happened, at that moment that he would free that slave and adopt him as a son, that son at that moment would no longer have any debts or liabilities because all of his debts, all of his liabilities would transfer from him over to the father who had just adopted him as his own. If he owed a million dollars, the father now owed a million dollars and he was free. The son would no longer have liabilities. Whatever liabilities he had, whatever legal liabilities he had, would transfer to the father and the father would then be responsible for everything that the son had done up to that point and going forward. It means somebody else is no longer, is that you're no longer responsible. Somebody else is when you are adopted. Now, why do we need this? The reason we need it is that the father-child relationship that we had with God in the beginning was severed by the fall. We are all fellow creatures of God. We are all fellow image bearers of God, but we are not all children of God. The Bible says that uh, that it is through adoption that we become children of God when we believe. It's the first chapter of the gospel according to John. To those who believed, he gave the right to become children of God, children not born of a human decision or a husband's will, but children born of God. What kind of debts and liabilities get transferred from you to your father when you believe? Uh, the answer is all of them. And I am constantly coming to terms with the fact that I have debts and liabilities that are far beyond what I ever imagined. I remember you know, five years ago, um, during the Ferguson uh, protests after Mike Brown's death, uh, you know, I was very favorable toward the concerns of the protesters, and yet I remember at one point I was watching the news and, and it was, it was out of control. Uh, there was a lot of anger. There's a lot of rage. And I remember this Papa John's in Ferguson and I was watching it. And, uh, and these kids started throwing rocks at the Papa John's window to smash it. And, and one older lady, uh, a woman of color got up in front of them and tried to block them. She's, she's lecturing them saying, we don't need to destroy businesses. This is somebody's privately owned business. We, this isn't what we're here for. And they then turn on this woman and begin to attack her. And I remember the rage that welled up inside of me when I saw all these kids turn on this older woman. Uh, just, I just, I was so angry. And I just thought, you know, we're gonna have to send in the army rangers. We're gonna have to militarize this zone. This is insane. And then it was then that, that God started to convict me. He started to crack open my hard heart and show me ugly things about myself that I didn't think were there because I thought I was open-minded and progressive and all this other kinds of stuff. And, and, and what God was telling me is, Greg, these are 16 and 17-year-old kids. And if they looked like you, Greg, 
If they were blonde hair and blue eye with freckles, clean cut with Parkway West letter jackets, you wouldn't be calling in the, 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 the federal marshals. You wouldn't be calling in the army rangers. You'd be saying somebody needs to take those kids down to the station and call their mom and dad and tell them that they need to come pick up their boy and their boy's going to have a court date because they're smashing in windows and beating up little old ladies and you're not, you're not supposed to do that. It's not right. And that difference, and I'd be wondering about these kids, what, what they had experienced to have so much rage, what injustice they had gone through to feel they had no hope except to blindly fight against everything that was around them, that the system felt so wrong. That empathy gap that I saw in my heart five years ago, that empathy gap that has empathy and compassion and generous justice toward people who look like me, and wants only justice and punishment for everyone else. That's, that's what we call racism. And I didn't even know it was there. It was so subtle. But it was there. And it was there because I'm an American. And when you're an American, it's in your blood. It's in your water. All these assumptions. And, and having to face that and say, God, here I am. All the people who have given me hands up in in life, the people who paid for my education, all the mentors, the people who came to my defense and protected me when I was in trouble. I have all this privilege, all this stuff, all these people who have looked out for me, and I'm getting angry at them? I think it's pretty clear that I'm the far bigger sinner. I'm without excuse. That's a liability. That's a debt. What's your liability? What's your debt? Maybe for you it's something different. Maybe for you it's not rage. Maybe for you it's not racism. Or maybe it's a different species of it. Maybe for you it's not arrogance. Maybe for you it's anger. Or maybe it's pride. Or maybe it's an addiction that you're struggling with. Or maybe that you're not even struggling with and you don't tell anybody about. Maybe it's an unhealthy need for other people's approval. Maybe it's just that you're really fake and always putting up a facade, always wearing a mask. Maybe it's that you're greedy and you don't really like giving money away to other people who maybe need it. Maybe it's something sexual. It's probably something sexual. Maybe for you it's it's that you have a history of minimizing your own sin. Or maybe it's a critical spirit or self-centeredness or apathy or self-righteousness. But all of us, friends, all of us have these debts and these liabilities and, and, and friends, I I need to know that a father loves me. And you need to know that a father loves you, that that he takes all of your debts, all of your liabilities on himself. You're not responsible. If you have Jesus, you are not responsible for your sin. God has taken responsibility for your sin. He calls you merely to bring it to him with the empty hands and say, Lord, I believe, help now my unbelief. And he is the one who will pay down your debt. He is the one who takes it to the cross. He is the one who takes full responsibility because you have a father who delights in you. You have a dad. What difference does it make when you pray to God knowing that you have a Father in heaven who loves you? It means that He's now responsible. The monkey's off your back. It means He's responsible. It also means a, a, a new relationship with Him. In verse 15, Paul says, By the Holy Spirit, we cry out, or we cry, Abba, which means Daddy, Father. Uh, that that verb to cry out, the Greek is used 40 times in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the, the Hebrew scriptures of our Old Testament before the time of Christ. And, and every time the word cry is used, it's a reference to intense, spontaneous outbursts of prayer. 40 times it's used just in the Psalms. You read, help me, O Lord, 
I cry out to you, my God. It's intense emotion, an appeal, begging God to come down. You know, other people pray. Everybody on the planet just about prays. But Christians, Paul says, cry out. How's it different? It means that we're supposed to take the role of a child when we pray. We don't put together nice formulaic prayers. Well, we do that, and, there's, and, and I love doing that, and there's a place for that. But here, what he's talking about is communicating like a child does. What do children do? Children cry. They can be relied upon to say the inappropriate thing at the inappropriate time because children have no sense of proper protocol. Children, some of you know, can be blunt. If they don't like something, they're going to tell you they don't like it. If it, even if it hurts somebody's feelings, they don't know better. Children don't yet have that filter that adults have learned to have. And Jesus is saying, I want you to approach your father like he's your daddy, which he is, your Abba, because he is your dad, and as if you're the little kid. And that means learning to strip away that filter that you've learned by being an adult Christian in a religious community. To pray like a child to your father is to speak like a little child to your parent. It means, it means getting rid of the protocol. It means stripping away the filter. It means verbally processing things out loud with God as they're happening and as you're feeling it. It means that when you're angry with God or you're mad about your experience, you tell God that you're mad at him or that you're angry about your experience. You don't come up with some religious face and religious sounding jargon. You won't get very far. If you do that, you're going to get bored. Your mind is going to wander. You're going to stop praying and you're going to feel guilty about it. It's just how this happens. You're going to give up. but Because that's not gospel prayer. Prayer, Jesus says, prayer, Paul says, is approaching God as your father and as if you're his little baby boy or girl. You don't have to collect all your thoughts together and process them to produce some eloquent thing in order to speak to God about it in prayer. You just, find, you just found out you got an F on a biochemistry exam and you find yourself thinking, well, snap, I didn't want an F on that exam. So what do you do? You turn that process outward to God and you cry out to God. God, I didn't want to fail this exam. I feel like such an idiot and a failure. God, it makes me feel like, like, like I'm never going to get anywhere in life. God, I need you right now. You're my father. Can you fix this? I don't know how to fix it, Lord. I don't know what to do with this, but you're my father. So what am I supposed to do now? God, does this mean I'm going to fail the course? Father, I don't know what this means for my future, for my career, but I need you right now, God. I need you. Do you hear that? Funneling all the anxiety and loss and sorrow and pain to God in Prayer because he's your dad. That's prayer. That's a thousand times more vibrant and alive than what you do when you sit on the floor trying to come up with something to say to God. It means you're his child. We don't expect children to bring formal proposals in triplicate. We just want them to cry out to us when they're hurting. And if you would turn to God every time you feel bad or feel surprised or sad or worried or anxious and process that verbally out loud with God as your father, you, friends, you would find that your relationship with God is going to depths you never dreamed imaginable. That's what Jesus means when he says, when you pray, say, our father. That's what Paul means when he says that by the spirit of God, we cry, Abba, Daddy. We cry out because that's what children do. 
Children cry when they're in pain. Children cry when they're sad. Children cry when they're hungry. Children ask for everything they want because they're completely dependent. They don't know how to put food on the table. They say what they mean. They're not trying to figure out what you want to hear. They're not trying to please you in that way, at least not unless your your household is so emotionally unhealthy that they've had to learn that. And, and they ask constantly. They have no sensitivity toward whether it's appropriate to ask. And, and so you have to learn to become like little kids again so that you can learn to pray like Jesus wants us to pray. You have to learn to be the five-year-old crying out to your daddy when your toy toy train breaks down. Unlearn your adult filtering. Stop being the grown-up in the room and be the child because God's the grown-up. Cry out into the arms of your father who loves you and delights over you and wants to be in relationship with you. It is for this kind of relationship that Jesus went to the cross and died and sacrificed himself in order to gain you. It's not just to get you to heaven. It's so that he can be in communion with you here and now. And as you begin to pray, (laughs) and as you begin to pray, realistically, five minutes later, you're going to be on a completely different topic because that's how children process things. What attention span does a small child have? It's somewhere between one second and two minutes, unless it's a nap or television. But when talking with God, when processing with your father as a child, it means you're not overly concerned about structuring your conversation. That's not how conversations work. Conversations continually change subject. Conversations have lulls. A conversation can bounce from one topic to another. And approaching God as your father means approaching him as the child in a normal conversation, a crying out with emotion to God as your father. It means being utterly disorganized and inconsistent. It's okay to be brief. Jesus said, don't, don't feel like, don't be like the religious hypocrites who feel like they're heard because of their lengthy prayers. Uh, you know, there are times where when I'm really close to God, um, when He's really working in me, my prayers get pretty, pretty blunt and, and pretty gritty. And I always recognize I'm speaking to a holy God who is a consuming fire, who, who rules the nations with a rod of iron. But there are times where I'm just like, God, this situation is impossible. God, it's your church. If you want it to grow, you're going to have to make it because it's got your name on it, not mine. God, your glory is at stake. It's your gospel getting to your people who you have called. So if you want it to happen, Lord, you're going to have to make it happen. You think, Craig, that sounds irreverent. No, that sounds like crying because he's my dad and he loves me. Paul Miller talks about praying like a child. Uh, If you haven't read A Praying Life by Paul Miller, I highly recommend it. Um, Tim Keller also recommends it and he's pretty good too. Um, He says, Paul Miller says this, he says, private personal prayer is one of the last great bastions of legalism. In order to pray like a child, you might need to unlearn the non-personal, non-real praying that you've been taught. Why is it so important, he asks, to come to God just as you are? He says, if you don't, then you're artificial and unreal like the Pharisees. Rarely did they tell Jesus directly what they were thinking. Jesus accused them of being hypocrites, of being masked actors with two faces. They weren't real, nor did they like little children. The Pharisees were indignant when little children poured into the temple after Jesus had cleansed it. And, they, and, and when they began worshiping him, and Jesus replied, quoting Psalm 8, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Uh, the only way to come to God is by taking off your spiritual mask. The real you has to meet the real God because he is a person. So instead of being frozen by your self-preoccupation, 
Talk with God about your worries. Tell him where you're weary. If you don't begin with where you are, then where you are will sneak in the back door. Your mind will wander to where you're weary. We are so busy and overwhelmed that when we slow down to pray, we don't know where our hearts are. We don't know what troubles us. So oddly enough, we might have to worry before we can pray. Then our prayers will make sense. They will be about our real lives. He writes, your heart could be, as it often is, askew. And that's okay. You have to begin with what is real. Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. All of us qualify. The very things we try to get rid of, our weariness, our distractedness, our messiness, are what gets us in the front door. That's how the gospel works. That's how prayer works. When you stop trying to be an adult and trying to get it right, prayer will just flow because God has done something remarkable. He's given you a new voice. That's the Holy Spirit in you, crying out to God as your dad. This is a new relationship with your father, a never-ending conversation, a new relationship where you cry to him and cry to him about everything that's not good. And real prayer, it's messy like a child and real like a child, and therefore real prayer cries like a child. Notice this is indicative, not imperative. Paul doesn't say, you must cry. Abba, Father. And he says you do. Because when the gospel sinks in, when you really get it and you realize what it means to be a son, what it's like to have a father, what it's like to be loved in that way, when you begin to feel that security, to have your debts transferred to him so he pays them down for you, you realize you're spiritually no longer in debt, that your account has limitless reserves because your father's account it has limitless reserves. And when that sinks in and you begin to feel loved by God, you actually start to talk to him throughout your day because you know he loves you and you know he's there. It's, it's the, the point of it all. Uh, you, know, you know, God is aware. God is aware when you are speaking to him. Don't think that his greatness and infinity, his endless size and glory means that he doesn't know you. Jesus says the hairs on your head are numbered. Jesus says a sparrow cannot land on the ground or fall to the ground without the will of my Father in heaven. He knows you. He knows the details of your life. He sees and hears your tears. He knows your worries, your anxieties, your doubts. And he loves you. And he hears you. And he is aware when you are speaking to him. You say, Greg, God seems just really, really distant to me. And I say that sounds like a really good place to start talking with God. What's it actually look like? Well, it may look like this. God, I know it says in the Bible that you're my father, but the reality is that you seem really, really distant to me. I'm not even sure at times whether you're real or whether I'm just speaking to the ceiling right now. I don't even know if I'm a Christian, but I I think I want to be. And so I don't know what to do with this, Father. But if you're there, I pray that you'll actually do something. Because I need you. Now, don't go write that into a formal thing and recite it every week. You know, I mean, you could do that. We do that all the time. It's great. The Bible does that. Uh, but, but I'm saying start with where you are. You know, talk to him like he's a real person because he is a real person. Uh, Jesus says in Luke 11, which of you parents, if your child asks you for a fish, will give him a snake? Which of you, if your son asks you for an egg, is going to hand him a scorpion? If you, though you are evil, 
know how to give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father bless you and answer when you cry out to Him in prayer? It means somebody else is responsible. He's your Abba. He's your Daddy. And it means a new relationship. And that relationship brings a new confidence. Jesus, or Paul in verse 17, speaks of a son, an heir, and a co-heir. And I want you to understand this is a very specific son that he's speaking to about, uh, uh, that you become when you believe. Uh, to us in the secular West, this just seems really sexist. When, when the Apostle Paul in the Bible talks to a group of women and men mixed and he says, you're sons, you're like, you're, you're sitting there thinking, no, Paul, I'm a daughter. He says, no, you're a son. You're like, Paul, you're being a sexist, misogynist pig, just like most of human history. I'm a woman. I am female. I will have that acknowledged. Do not call me a son. He says, I know you're female and you're a son and an heir and a co-heir. What's he doing? What's he actually doing is, is he's, he's doing something really, really fascinating. It's actually incredibly subversive as a move on Paul's part because in it, he's actually elevating the status of Christian women in the ancient world. Even with their continued nuanced gender differentiation, the early Christians were known as the feminists of the ancient world. They had an incredible gender equality. Paul says, you're a son. You say, no, I'm not. I'm female. And he says, yes, you're a son in Christ. What's going on? To understand how Paul is subverting this patriarchal system, you have to understand something about inheritance law in the ancient world. You see, Paul had a very particular son in mind that he's describing when he, when he describes you. He says here in Romans in verse 17 that you are a son and an heir and co-heir with Christ. In ancient inheritance law, it's a very specific position. It's a unique relationship because, uh, because, uh, imagine, for example, you had ten children, five sons and five daughters. If you were to take your property, your land and your wealth and divide it up evenly between your ten children, then what's going to happen within one generation to all of your family's wealth? Well, it will be gone because it will have been subdivided. And so in the ancient world, what, was, what would happen is the daughters would be married off. Uh, the younger sons would be paid off or given some stipend or something or given some arrangement and going to the military, whatever. And, and then the oldest son would receive the inheritance. He would receive the name. He would receive the land. He would receive all title to everything that the family owned. Uh, and so the firstborn son was the heir, the co-heir, if you will, and would take the family's property. He would be the favored son. Uh, and in an incredibly subversive way, what Paul is doing is he's speaking to a group of mixed women and men, and he's telling each one of them that they have now been elevated to the status of primogenitor. They have been elevated to the status of firstborn son, to the status of heir, to the status of co-heir with Christ. That means that whatever belongs to Christ is now shared equally with you. You get everything. It's not divided up. Every one of us gets every spiritual blessing in Christ because you, male or female, are now not just a son, but an heir and a co-heir with Christ. And this means that you are now the favored son with all of the family's honor, all of God's dignity placed upon your shoulders. What does this mean practically? It means this. I'm his favorite. And so are you. You're the one who carries God's dignity and honor. You're the one who bears his name and receives all that is his. The three things Jesus 
heard from the Father at his baptism. You are my son, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased are the very three things that in Christ God the Father is saying to you. He is saying, you are my son, I love you, and I am proud of you. A son is different from an orphan, different from a slave. Verse 15, we've been translated from being slaves of fear to the spirit of sonship. You say, Greg, I'm not sure my faith is that strong. But it's not the strength of your faith that's at issue, but rather the faithfulness of your father. Uh, I mean, I hope you'll notice that in identifying as our father, God is choosing the only non-severable relationship that human beings can experience. You know, you if you adopt a child... That child is not just yours until they're 18. You, When you adopt a child, you are that child's mother or father forever for the rest of their life. It's, it's a non-severable relationship. And God is saying, I am adopting you. And I am your father now. And you are my little boy. You are my little girl now. And you will be my heir and my co-heir with my son Jesus now, fully, finally, and forever because it's permanent. We've got some slides. I'll tell you a story. Media shout, can we get that first slide? Uh, it's something that Margaret Wise Brown uh, captured in her 1942 book, The Runaway Bunny. Um, can, uh, if you can maybe follow along with me. Once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away, and so he said to his mother, I'm running away. If you run away, said his mother, I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. If you run after me, said the little bunny, I will become a fish in a trout stream and I will swim away from you. Can we get the fish in the... Oh, we're all off. I'll just read it. We're on the second one at this point. All right. So much for that. If you become a fish in a trout stream, said his mother, I will become a fisherman and I will fish for you. If you become a fisherman, uh, uh, said the little bunny, I will become a rock in the mountain high above you. Well, if you become a rock on the mountain high above me, said his mother, I will become a mountain climber and I will climb to where you are. Well, if you become a mountain climber, said the little buddy, then I will be a crocus in a hidden garden. Well, if you become a crocus in a hidden garden, said his mother, I will be a gardener and I will find you. If you become a gardener and find me, said the little bunny, I will be a bird and I will fly away from you. If you become a bird and fly away from me, said his mother, I will be a tree that you come home to. Well, if you become a tree, said the little bunny, I will become a sailboat and I'll sail away from you. Well, if you become a sailboat and sail away from me, said his mother, I will become the wind and blow you where I want you to go. Well, if you become the wind and blow me, said the bunny, I will join a circus and fly away on a flying trapeze. If you go flying on a flying trapeze, said his mother, I will be a tightrope walker, and I will walk across the air to you. If you become a tightrope walker, and walk across the air, said the bunny, I'll become a little boy, and run into a house. If you become a little boy, and run into a house, said mother bunny, I'll become your mother, and catch you in my arms, and hug you. Ah, shucks, said the bunny. I might just as well stay where I am and be your little bunny. And so he did. Friends, that's a love that will never go away. That's a love that is downright parental, 
but with all the mixed agendas and bad background and issues and psychiatric stuff and all the stuff that we got from our parents and that we're going to send on to our kids, God's love is the love of a father who is absolute, pure, undiluted, burning love, a love that burns for you and is passionate for you and that gave up his son Jesus in order to gain the thing he wanted most, which is you. Let's pray. Our Father, we do bless and praise your name even as we come to this table, to this sacrament. We ask, Father, that you would meet with us, Lord. I pray for those here who who don't know what it's like to know the love of a Father, that you would show them that love of a Father. We pray through Christ the Lord. Amen.